1: The show will begin in in five, four, three, two, one. If you thought you just heard a window break, don't worry, it's just fragments of (laughs) silicon. Um, welcome to another installment of Fragments of Silicon, the European edition. Um, joining us this week is Julian Galop of Snapshot Games. Hello. Hello. Yes, um, this is an interview we've been wanting to do for a while, but uh, had some complications.
0: Uh, yes, I do apologize for that, my entire family being ill in sequential uh, order.
1: Uh, th- <laughs> think nothing of it I'm kind of dealing with something um, uh, quite the same at the moment that's yep. kind of how families work anyway yeah, yeah. it like, yeah. is uh, the season to be sick now <laughs> what is it the what family that gets sick together sticks together Even uh, yeah whatever mantra you want to go with you know, it's like it, it's the sick season so um, sometimes that arises Anyway, so we uh, like to get started by asking uh, our interviewees how they got started um, in video games, both on a personal level and a professional level.
0: Okay, shall I start? Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, how I got interested in games. Um, Now, do you mean uh, board games, role-playing games, or video games, or everything? Is I- the question Because when I started um, getting interested in games, uh, video games didn't exist. So we're going back a ways. I mean, I was into I- board games, especially Hex and Counter um, war games from SBI Avalon Hill, and then of course Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, this was around 1980. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons had just come out. Um, I got into science fiction role-playing games as well. Traveller was one, um, and I think the you know the first video game games I played were in the arcades. Of course, I mean I remember old favourites of mine were things like Defender and Robotron, Missile Command, um, Asteroids. I think those were the main ones. Um, but what I really wanted to do was was um, implement my sort of pre- you know, strategy games ideas on home computers. So I, I started, um, as soon as home computers were viable, I started <coughs> both playing and programming. And so the first machine I had actually it was really a viable sort of video game system, if you can call it that, was the Sinclair zx 81 with a 16K RAM pack, and which they have classic games on that, including Monster Maze and chess. and <laughs> You name it, so that's that's where I started from.
1: Yeah, that's going back a ways. It
0: is going back a way. Yeah, sorry, it's 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 a long, long, long time ago.
1: No, no, uh, like we have that happen occasionally. You know, it's like some people started earlier, some people started later. You know, it's like, like you it's just we don't hear a lot about the ZX uh, eighty one. Like usually it's like the ZX Spectrum.
0: Yes, well that was obviously my second machine that I acquired. Um, after learning to program a bit on the ZX81, and uh, the, the Spectrum was amazingly successful in the UK. I think that was about it. Um, and it was relatively cheap for the amount of memory you got. This is a very important factor, by the way, when it comes to actually trying to build the games that I wanted to build, which were relatively sophisticated strategy games with. AIs and, you know, so the the, the Spectrum 48K had a massive, massive 48K of RAM, which may not sound like a lot these days, of course, but um, in those days, it was amazing.
1: I'm like, everything is relative. Uh, You know, it's like uh, yesterday's 48K of RAM is today's, I don't know, two terabytes yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, yeah. like or, um, 16 gigs uh, in terms of ram or whatever specs you want to use you know? i mean obviously yeah. size has changed but the, the principle remains the same uh
0: yeah i know so 48k is probably not enough for an icon on your desktop these days uh because the the Programming was, was much more limited and the tools available were much more limited. So as programming in Z80Assembler, which is a very limited instruction set, um, it it made it difficult to do things, but you had to program really close to the hardware. So, so literally, to put something on a screen, you had to actually shift bytes and bits into an area of memory, which is the screen memory, and um, that's it. That's all you can do. <laughs>
1: I'm like, and how restrictive was that in regards to making the games you wanted to make?
0: Uh, It was tricky. I think the trickiest thing that I had to deal with actually was was artificial intelligence. So uh, the first game that I programmed on the ZX Spectrum um, was a game called Nebula. Uh, and interestingly, this could be seen as as a very, very early version of a 4X game because you were basically in command of like a star empire. You had to explore and expand and exploit and do the usual 4X stuff. Um, and single player, those, in single-player, those was intended as a multiplayer version of a game. The single-player game had a sort of random event, which was this enemy that invaded the galaxy, which is cool. That was relatively easy to do on that particular game because it, it was pretty dumb. But as soon as I got into something more sophisticated, so my you know my next game, I program was a game called Rebel Star Radius. This was a two-player tactical squad game, and here is the here is the, actually the very origin of XCOM. And it had um, different squad members with different names and different weapons and ranged combat and sort of um, terrain that obstructed fire and so on. So it had all that, but it was only two players. I hadn't figured out how to do AI at all at that stage. And interesting enough, that sold quite well. Of course you'll never be able to sell just a two-player game on a console these days. But um, it it did quite well. And um, the, the problem they were doing in AI, which I, I did manage to do with my next game, which is called Chaos, which came out in nineteen eighty-five, is that I had you know you you stuff the your pro your code, the the your 40k that you've got for your code and data with with code and graphics, and then you've got like 3K left or something to actually code the AI in, and that's pretty tricky. Um, So yeah, that was a challenge.
1: No doubt, no doubt. Now, did you do all of your early programming on the uh, Sinclair platforms or did you ever manage to like do anything on the Commodore 64? Yeah we
0: did yes so by the time we got to um a game called Laser Squad so I set up a company this time was in 1988 and my brother came to work with me fresh out of college um he was actually going to implement the Commodore 64 version but I'd already started on it so we'd already um uh, by ice the original was made on the Sinclair 48k uh, original version of laser Quad. We did, I started the Commodore 64 version. My brother finished that and that was, that's also a very cool machine. Um, it, was way, it was way more expensive than the ZX Spectrum but it had a lot more hardware of course. It had uh, you know like a decent sound chip. On a ZX Spectrum you had basically a speaker that you could basically turn on and off. Um, it had better video hardware. It had hardware sprites as well. Um, it was complicated to manage the memory in that machine. I seem to remember, um, and it had a disk drive that really sucked. I, I, can't, I mean, the, the disk drive was about as slow to load and save stuff as it was to load and save stuff on a on a simple tape drive on the aesthetic <laughs> spectrum. Um, so yeah, we did come with 64 version of, of Laser Squad, and so that was back in 88. And also another machine we did uh, we made the game for was the Amstrad CPC. Those were all the 8-bit machines. Right. And then there was a, a, an Atari ST and Amiga version made of Laser Squad, but we didn't do that version. That was done by another company. That was done a, a conversion that was done by somebody else.
1: I suppose the question that beckons is, when did you finally graduate to the 16-bit machines?
0: Yes, around eighty-nine, I think. Immediately we I finished we finished Laser Squad on the eight-bit machines. We started on our my next game, which is called Lords of Chaos. Um but that was made for, for all the home computer platforms that we could sort of manage. So that was made for the ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, Amstrad CBC, Commodore Amiga, and Atari ST. Um uh, that was quite a big effort. I don't think we ever did such a cross-platform effort after that again. But that, you know, the 8-bit machines were sort of dying by that stage. And um, the interestingly, though, we, we we never we didn't really dwell much on the 16, the the uh, Amiga and ST in particular, because we wanted to go for the PC. Um, we saw the PC as the gaming machine of the future especially for strategy games. Um, Which we were correct, by the way, because, you know, this was, so we're going back to like 1990, and the games that were coming out then were, well, for Microprose, we had Railroad Tycoon, Mm -hmm. uh, and then not long after that was Civilization, of course. Um, I think Civilization was 91, if I remember correctly, something like that. So, We were very keen to get get into um, doing stuff on the PC at that stage.
1: Yeah, and uh, this is about the time the PC is really taking off. uh, Yeah, yeah. It's it's like everything from, say, the sites from platformers to FPSs.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Of course, I remember seeing for the first time um, Wolfenstein 3D. Uh, That blew me away. That was amazing that was oh, on yeah. the PC. Yeah.
1: So I suppose the question is, um, when did you start developing XCOM? Or,
0: so uh, XCOM yeah. started initially with a demo that we made on the Atari ST. So we decided we wanted to, to start working on PC games, strategy games, and we wanted to find a decent publisher. Top of our list was Microprose because we were already you know, really um, Enamoured with Sid, Sid Meier. Sid Meier was a big influence on both me and my brother. And um, so we made a demo on the ST. We took it to to Microprose, made it clear that we wanted to do it on the PC. And that was absolutely fine with them because. Um, you know, Micropros were primarily developing stuff on the PC in, in the US at that stage, and, and the UK division of, of Micropros wanted to to do the same kind of stuff that the, the US division was doing. Um, so, um, they asked us if we were capable of doing it. Of course, we said absolutely, of course, no problem, easy peasy. And we never even programmed anything on the PC at that stage. Um, but we kind of guessed it would be easier than... Doing assembly language stuff on the 8-bit machines, uh, and we were we were right, or at least partially right, because one thing you have to remember about the PCs in those days is that hardware standards were difficult, and especially when it came to expanded memory, because the PC as a base machine only had 640K, and that was the that was the PC specification. Anything beyond that, different manufacturers and stuff were doing different things. So you had uh, extended memory and expanded memory, and these were all sort of like page swapping systems. You have to page in memory to address it. Um, it was it was a a, a nightmare. Uh, unfortunately, we had we came across a really fantastic compiler called the Whatcom C compiler, which treated the memory as a flat memory model, so we could um, build stuff very easily. That basically uh, saved our bacon uh, from some real stress. <laughs> Um, and it actually made it very. That's actually, actually what see probably is the single most important piece of software that made PC gaming viable because it solved that really difficult hardware problem with how to treat the the extended memory. Um, uh, so that that was cool. We were away. We started on XCom, and it was a, it started as a demo for for Laser Squad 2. So all, all we had at that stage was basically. An evolution of our tactical battle system only and um, there are a lot of the elements of the tactical system for, for XCOM were there. You know we had action points, different types of shots, morale systems, stamina systems, armor systems. It had 3D isometric graphics again. Bullets can go up and down as well as left and right. So it had all of that stuff there. It just didn't have any of the strategy layer and that came about um, really because of our interaction with, with Microprose, because they wanted to have something that would compete with Sid Meier's civilization. Uh, which we thought was a bit ambitious, of course. Um, so they gave us some, some sort of uh, requirements. One was that it had to have like some kind of um, civilopedia equivalent. And needed to have some kind of research tree, and it needed to be set on Earth. And the theme they chose was was UFOs. Um, a bunch of guys, there were fans of the Jerry Anderson Anderson show, which was called UFO. Um, and actually, from that show, we took the idea of the XCOM organisation because in the show you had an organisation organisation called Shadow. And their job was to intercept UFOs. um, They had three levels of interception. One was based on the moon, so they had moon-based interceptors. Then they had sort of aircraft, air-based interceptions. And finally, if the UFO made it all the way down to the ground, they had a ground-based interceptor. Uh, We didn't have the moon-based interceptions in in XCOM. But we did have this idea that you could intercept UFOs in the air and on the ground. And we had this organization like Shadow, which became XCOM. So that is actually how XCOM got started, and we were basically... I had to basically design a sort of strategic layer to incorporate this tactical layer, which we already developed and was an evolution of Laser Squad in my earlier games. That's how it came about.
1: Was that a big challenge, or was that a fairly simple affair?
0: It it was a big challenge. in In terms of the the design i uh, you know I, I produced a little design document which is not very long, twelve pages. Um, it had all the elements there, but there wasn't very much explanation how it all worked and you know the microprose u k designers were also a bit puzzled as to how it was supposed to work and it took a lot of convincing and, and in fact this this sort of interaction between the strategic and tactical layer never really came together very well and probably until the last three or four months of development of the actual game itself. Um, and it was just me and Nick, uh, my brother, who were working on the game in terms of programming and design. And we had a couple of artists who were based at Microprose who were contributing the art for it. So it was a very, very small team by today's standards, And it was a very ambitious game for such a small team. Um, and yeah, it was challenging. Uh, and there was a lot of code in the game. We actually had to split the the game into two separate executables. So you got the, the strategic level, the geoscape, was called geoscape.exe. And that would have to load up the tactical game, which is called the battlescape.exe. Um, and then when the battle was finished, it had to load up the geoscape.exe. That's how we managed to fit the stuff within the memory requirements.
1: That's interesting. Uh, Though I, I think it did ultimately work out very well because the... Uh... Multi layered gameplay is one of the more unique and interesting things about XCOM.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it completely transformed uh, what could have been just a sequence of tactical missions into something much, much, much more interesting.
1: All right. Um, so. Did you ever foresee that um, this game, well, uh, first of all, uh, this wasn't actually called XCOM at first, right? Uh, it was no. not a UFO Enemy Unknown.
0: That's right, yeah. I mean, initially we just called it UFO, and the European version was released as UFO Enemy Unknown. They, they switched the name for the U.S. release, which came, I think, a few months after, about four months after the uh, European release. They switched the name to XCOM UFO Defense, uh, which is probably was a good move because UFO as a title is a bit generic. And XCOM is something, the, the actual name XCOM was was invented by the two designers at Microprose UK. Um, one of them was, was, was Steve Hand, who was a major influence in actually getting the game signed by Microprose. So, they'd actually invent, invented the name for this organization. Um, mm. And that became the name of the game for the US release. And uh, XCOM sort of stands for Extraterrestrial Combat Force or something like that. I was
1: wondering if it was like Extraterrestrial Command or something like that.
0: Yeah, well, the way it was a bit vague as to what it actually meant, but yeah, Extraterrestrial Combat Force was the way Steve can put it um so makes sense it, yeah come on also makes sense <laughs>
1: yeah i mean did you think that the um game you were making would, would take off as it did
0: like uh, no we had absolutely no idea what the reaction to it would be because there's no other game like it at the, at the time i mean it's completely an unknown quantity um obviously I, I, some of the early sort of two player sort of tactical skirmish games that I've done have been quite popular in the past the laser squad was popular or we came back to rebel star Ravers was popular so we knew that you know that side was kind of would kind of work quite well um but yeah it was was a really unknown quantity um we were not convinced we had no idea I mean Microprose uk were quietly confident that um, that it would do pretty well, Um, and indeed it did, so they were right.
1: (laughs) Right, Um, so I know you developed at least one of the follow-ups. Yes. XCOM Apocalypse, I believe. Yes,
0: correct, yes.
1: So um, what did you do to, like, expand or improve on the um, formula, as it were?
0: Well, an interesting thing was happening in uh, PC gaming at that stage, uh, which did somewhat influence the way XCOM Apocalypse was was developed. So around 96, um, pretty much everybody, every game developer in the world was developing RTS games. Um, it was you know, wide, widely seen as pretty much killing off Sort of old fashioned turn based games. Um, and so, XCOM Apocalypse on the tactical side, we actually had a real time system for the tactical battles. But it wasn't really much like an RTS in, in many ways. It was, uh, it was a pausable system, so you could pause the action at any point. You could just hit the space bar, pause the action, and you can actually issue orders in fairly detailed level to your soldiers. And they also had some AI, which was quite useful. So if you put them next to cover, they would actually use it. They would actually duck into cover and out again to shoot automatically. Um, and it had sort of a squad organisation system, so you could put guys in squads. It had, the, it had more sophisticated um, mechanics all round. That your characters could could crawl as well as kneel and stand and so on. Um, it had different body part armor for different body parts you can mix and match different types of armor and stuff it was also quite interesting uh, the only thing we did on the strategic level which is very different next time apocalypse was it set basically in a big city and this city was controlled by different organizations many of these were corporations some of them were criminal gangs religious cults and they all had a kind of um, uneasy relationship with each other and you as the XCOM organization also had a um, sort of diplomatic status with each of these organizations and if you pissed them off they would get angry at you and if you pissed off one of the uh, armed suppliers they'd stop sending you stuff and stuff like that and um, it was kind of cool in some ways to watch three-way battles between you, the police force, and the aliens. (laughs) The police, they don't like the aliens and XCOM and you as XCOM don't like the aliens but have to fight the police and so on um so it was kind of it was it was quite a departure from the original and series, but we, we kind of wanted to do something a bit different and it was a, a bit too different probably uh and yeah the influence of the rts craze was, was there and the fact that we had um you know the real-time tactical combat although you could actually play it turn-based as well you have the choice you can play in turn-based mode or real-time mode uh, although to be honest it was designed really for the real-time mode. The turn-based mode didn't work brilliantly. Um, so that that was XCOM Apocalypse and it, it was released in 1997 so it was pretty much the sort of heyday of RCS gaming at that point. I think it was like 50 or 100 of them released in that year alone. It was getting ridiculous. Uh, so after that you could probably say XCOM, the XCOM franchise seriously started to go off the rails but um we weren't involved in XCOM after that point.
1: Is there any particular reason that caused the split or was it a variety of factors?
0: Uh any reason that what that uh,
1: Um was there any particular reason why you um uh no longer made XCOM games or was it a yeah. variety of factors?
0: Um well, actually, what we what we did um, after during the development of, of XCOM uh, was that we started thinking about maybe looking for another publisher because um, Microprose had gone through quite a few turbulent changes. They um, uh, were sold to no, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the company now. Uh,
1: I think. If we're talking spectrum big-
0: spectrum holobyte, sorry yeah spectrum holobyte. they were sold to spectrum holobyte which mainly specialized in sort of you know um, aircraft simulation stuff um, and they they were they were very nervous about who actually owns the intellectual property of Xcom and our legal advice was that probably, Microprose did, but obviously their legal advice said that we might have some rights in there. So they tried to force us to officially hand over all rights in XCOM and they sort of uh, were basically threatening to cancel XCOM Apocalypse if they didn't get their way, and which wasn't very nice from our point of view. Um, we, we gave them what they wanted in return for some higher royalties on on uh, Xcom apocalypse, but by that point we thought well we need to find another publisher so um, we actually got a very good offer from uh, Virgin interactive at that time, so that's why we that's why we left and uh we can no longer officially work on XCOM of course so that's the downside um, but by that stage I think we, we really wanted to do something different.
1: Mm-hmm. Understandable, understandable. Um, like, um, so we do have to press forward but before we depart from XCOM um, I w- want to know what your thoughts are on the um, you know the recent titles uh, under uh, 2K and Firaxis games.
0: Uh, Well, I I think what they attempted to do, and attempted to do amazingly successful, was not just resurrect the the XCOM franchise, but actually make turn-based tactical gaming cool again, uh, which is an amazing feat. Um, So I was very, very impressed with what they did, and um, obviously they made a few changes. Um, a compromise too far, maybe for many XCOM fans, but they actually managed to reach a really big audience with the XCOM enemy unknown back in... Um, uh, when was it released? 2012. Mm-hmm. So I think that was amazing um, and they did a very good job. Uh, XCOM 2, uh, I'm currently playing XCOM 2 with the War of the Chosen expansion and I think again it's, it's, it's quite amazing what they did. Some things I would have done differently, for sure. Um, But there's no denying the fact that XCOM is back again.
1: That's true. It's true. And um, in a strategy uh, form, because they also tried uh, to do um, third person uh, shooter, the Bureau XCOM classified.
0: That's right, yes, yeah. And actually when that was announced, I think it was back in 2010, I was very disappointed and I, I, I had the urge to try and get a team together and do a proper XCOM remake and I actually made a little bit of headway in that. And, but then when Firaxis announced their version of XCOM, I thought, well, there's no point in me trying to do, do it because if anyone could do it well, it would almost certainly be Firaxis.
1: Hmm. But that's a good uh, jumping-off point to, um, well, Phoenix Point. Um, and so I think the... we might have to have you back on because I do have some questions about XCOM, but oh, <laughs> we'd we take up the whole show if we did that. So? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, skipping a big chunk of this history here. We're jumping mm-hmm. from 2001-ish to, you know, today. Yeah. but We only have an hour, and we've already expected sure. half of that. <laughs> right. So, uh, and speaking of which, um, Petty fan, uh, we do have quite a large cut of gameplay to showcase yeah it's gonna be rolling on mute in the background yeah so um if you're watching the video version of this um you can watch that granted Mm. we've been having some problems with the audio versions of our episodes but that's a thing for another day anyway so um did that desire to make a new XCOM flow into your current project here phoenix point
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess you could call it unfinished business in a way. There are some things that I wanted to explore yeah. with what it was doing back in XCOM Apocalypse that I, I wanted to come back to in a, in a much bigger way. Um, and I, I also wanted to to address some of my frustrations with the for axis XCOMs on the strategic side um, by doing something which is more what we wanted to do i think with with um apocalypse which is have a a very dynamic and sort of systems driven world where you as the player are a are are an actor in that world but you're you're not you know if you if you did did nothing that world would still continue to to do things things would happen things would resolve in certain ways um so i guess you could call it a bit more of like a simulation style approach to to um, the game uh, and obviously the trick with doing anything which is simulation is, is how do you how do you guarantee that it's going to be fun or interesting for the player so that's one of the challenges also for phoenix point um, so what happens in phoenix point again it's set on the earth and again there's there's an alien threat all this time it's a very unusual one because it's it it originates from something very basic like a virus and rapidly mutates and starts to take over humans and make monsters out of them. Um, there's a strong Lovecraft influence in both the theme and the storyline, uh, which I can't divulge too much of, but it's, but it's certainly based on, on some of Lovecraft's themes ab- about mutation and combinations of different species. And His, his obsession with uh, creatures from the sea <laughs> also comes into Phoenix Point because the aliens of Phoenix Point really emerge from the sea. Um, so I'm exploring a lot of those themes, which are basically the, the, the tone is is a bit more sci-fi horror than the, than the tone of the modern 4-axis XCOMs. Um, and again, on the, the strategic side, it's, it's driven by the, these interactions, not just between you, the player, and the aliens, but these, these other factions that exist in the world which have their own agenda and they're doing their own stuff and they've got their own secrets they've got their own technology uh, and you need to you need to get some uh stuff from them some one way or another by either allying with them uh or fighting them or trading with them
1: Hmm. and um what made you want to go in a more lovecraftian direction
0: well because i I, I really like some of Lovecraft's sort of science fictiony horror stuff, which is mm. I, I like the whole the creepy aspect of I think there are these unknown vast unknown powers, which you know if we knew or really understood them, then we'd probably go insane because human beings are just completely unable to comprehend what they are. So, um, I. Uh, I've kind of been wanting to to put some of that stuff in, in the... Uh, some of that's already actually an XCOM apocalypse in, in a certain, at a certain level. I although mean, it didn't really succeed very well. Um, and actually, after doing the first XCOM, I, I wanted to do a sort of Lovecraftian style XCOM game set in the 1930s with secret sort of religious cults and interdimensional monsters and so on. Uh, but Microprose didn't like that because they told us that horror games don't sell. So anyway, so th- these themes i would always wanted to explore, and I wanted to come back to them with Phoenix Point. Um, now, Phoenix Point is set set in the future, so the game itself starts in, like, the year 2047, but the actual sort of um, pandemic, which starts the alien evolution, is sort of set in the very near future, and there's a whole history of what happens up to the point the, the game actually starts. Um, and it's a much more um, developed and intricate... World um, in terms of the world building, it's something I really want to explore. And well, I've got two excellent writers in, in our writing team who we are working on this, which is journalist Kaidatsi who so worked on the Talos Principle, uh, Alan Stroud who also worked with us on our previous project, which Chaos Reborn, and he's also worked with the Elite Dangerous team on novelization there. So we have um, uh, much more intricate world building and the Uh, So the game itself, on the geoscape level, also has a a um, more—it's going a little bit more towards the very original uh, XCOM, where you—you've got the the aliens are doing stuff. Um, The aliens are doing stuff, but they um, are—you know—they're working to their own agenda, and um, you have to try and figure out what that is and try and upset their plans. And in Phoenix point, you've not only got the Agnes working to their agenda, you've got these other factions working to their agendas. Uh, and there's more interesting sort of dynamics there between things that happen between them and, um, you know, more interesting outcomes for the player.
1: Uh, right. Um, so outside of the uh, horror theme, uh, what, what will distinguish this game from the modern XCOM series? In terms of like mechanics and
0: stuff, right. So the mechanics. Um, so we still have turn-based tactical battles, but one of the main uh, several mechanics that are fundamentally different. So one of the main ones is th- the fact that we use the, the, this like will points system. So obviously you, you've got you've got movement points and you've got health points and you've got will points and will points are used to uh, spend on physically or mentally stressful actions. Some of these can be really powerful. Um, but the only way you can do these powerful actions is by actually spending those will points and will points can be forced down below like zero which can cause your soldiers to panic so you take a risk obviously by doing these actions um but there are ways to mitigate that so the will point mechanics quite a strong one and allows it allows um characters to do to do some powerful combinations during a turn rather than just a straightforward move and shoot. You know, they can do more. And um so that's an interesting dynamic game. The other thing is that we have probably more sophisticated damage systems, so we've got more realistic ballistics in terms of how the, the weapons work and body parts, so hit location stuff. So different body parts have different abilities and armor levels and different effects when you injure them. This is very important when you're fighting the aliens, by the way, because an important part of your strategy will be to try and and, um, identify and take advantage of the weak spots on aliens, especially the large monsters. So the third thing which is majorly different is that we do have some really large scale enemies and um, in the tactical battles, these can be really big, like as big as a house. And again, you, you have to decide which Parts of the body you're attacking, not just shoot at this monster, because um, it makes a difference um, which which hit location you're going for. Um, and they have some very interesting combinations of abilities as well. And then, even bigger scale on a strategic level, we have these beer moths, which are you know skyscraper-sized monsters, which are roaming the landscape at later stages of the game. And you have to, the way to take those out is you have to actually land a squad on top of them and deploy um, drill, uh, sort of automated drills with poison on them to actually take them down because they're extremely heavily armored. So we have some really interesting sort of senses of scale there. Um, I just wanted to get this idea that that you as a squad were fighting just these incredibly uh, threatening and large monsters. (laughs)
1: Um, if you're um, watching the video footage we got, um, you're seeing a campaign against um, this giant, I don't know, scorpion beast.
0: Uh, yes, so this is one of them. Also. And also, I think we can add another thing in there which I didn't really mention. There, but I did briefly describe how the aliens are sort of evolving and mutating. So one thing that happens is that the, the enemies that you fight on the battlefield will, you know, next time you face them, they may have mutated um and that mutation may be subtle but it it might introduce some interesting new ability you know they might develop ability to to spit poison or they might um the monster might develop an ability to emit the the mist which shrouds them and sort of cover and so on so these mutations will occur when you um defeat the aliens in a certain way and they will adapt um so basically, depending on how you play as a player, and also on a number of random factors, you will probably face quite different enemies from one game to the next.
1: Is that procedurally generated?
0: Uh, yeah, partially. Um, Though the, the enemies are built from pre-configured components, um, the there are procedural systems also involved, which um, give different emphasis to different. Uh, abilities and, and and attributes, and this is reflected visually in the creatures as well.
1: And um, is that just to the monsters, or like the um, arenas, or, you know, locations procedurally generated as well?
0: Yeah, the yes, the locations are procedurally procedurally generated in a similar way to to XCOM 2, or even the original XCOM. Come to think of it. And there's a lot of procedural generation, of course, in the actual the strategic side setup up as well. Uh, so it'll never start off exactly the same. And you know, one game you might encounter one of the factions early on, and another game it might be a different one encounter early on, and that could affect the course of your development and which way you're going, um, what technology you get access to and so on.
1: Sounds good, sounds good. Uh, keeps things fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we have a question from the chat. Um, Spoiler Kevin asks, uh, have you spoken with Dave Ellis since the split?
0: Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I spoke to Dave uh, when I was doing a presentation on, on sort of the uh, sort of classic post This is a talk that I did at the Game Developers Conference back in about four years ago. I spoke to him at length about his experience on XCOM because Dave listed the original strategy guide for XCOM and then he went on to work on um, uh, XCOM, the, the space sim one, I can't remember what it's called now. And also he worked on XCOM Genesis, which was a cancelled project which was supposed to be a sort of reimagining of the original XCOM. Yeah, so I spoke to him at length about what happened in his experience with it. and. Um, and I, I guess we were of, uh, actually both he and I share exactly the same birthday, which is interesting. So um, we always have a mutual birthday celebration. Um, and uh, yeah, so th- there were there were many attempts actually in those days to sort of revive or rejuvenate the XCOM franchise. There was XCOM Genesis, which um, Dave Ellis was working on. There was also a game, big game called XCOM Alliance which originally started development in in UK Microprose, and then was transferred to the US. Uh, That was canceled as well, actually. Um, So there you go. Hmm.
1: That's good to hear that um, everything's been worked out and patched up. Anyway, um, let's see. Unstable Voltage asks about Interceptor.
0: Yes, Interceptor. This was the the game which uh, Dave Ellis designed. and obviously, replaced the tactical battles with a sort of uh, fairly arcade-style space sim thing, uh, which didn't go down very well with XCOM players. It was too far removed from what XCOM was all about, of course.
1: Right. So, um, bringing it back to the beginning of the interview, um, how are you? You integrating your experiments with AI into Phoenix Point here?
0: Uh, well, the the AI again has is based on the mutation evolution system. So, yeah. um, the the actual behaviors and tactics used by the aliens will change um, as they mutate uh, and as they gain different abilities. Um, there's also a strategic level of AI as well, so th- th- there's a lot more going on than just on the tactical level. Um, in particular, the, the the independent human factions are um, have uh, a strategic AI which in which governs their haven, their base building, their technological. They each have their own tech trees, for example, and in, and also their diplomatic initiatives. They will make alliances with each other, or they have wars with each other. This will also happen. So, yeah, there's a lot more going on in terms of AI and Phoenix Point than there what there has been in any previous XCOM-style game, for sure.
1: Mm. Interesting. And um, War Too Good asks, "Wouldn't it be cooler to go inside a behemoth and blow up its heart, or something like that, to kill them?" Uh. <laughs> mike
0: yeah it sounds um i i don't know i mean from from the plausibility point of view i guess even though large monsters don't really exist i am i'm not sure they will have convenient um corridors for you to navigate through uh yeah <coughs> um but that's an interesting idea maybe maybe you do literally have to dig a route to to its heart That that might be an alternative way to take them down but the basic way was that the moths themselves are 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 protected by little minions that are uh, all over its body so you will certainly have plenty of fighting to do uh, in order to to uh, beat them
1: right and um, in terms of uh, middleware solutions is this game being done in unreal or unity or uh, another engine
0: uh, we're using unity hmm. uh, we which is the we used Unity for our previous projects, Chaos Reborn, um, and we, we liked it and uh, we're sticking with it. It has a number of advantages, particularly on the programming side using uh, C-sharp, which is a, um, uh, a .NET-based system. It makes it much easier to debug and program. Um, graphically, it's pretty comparable to Unreal, I guess. Um, both both engines are very, very good, by the way. I mean, I, I really can't say. Obviously, they're trying to compete with each other directly, so obviously there's a lot of similarities between them. Um, I think you know Unity does get a bad reputation because of all the terrible sort of cheap games that are made with it, but that's doesn't actually mean the engine itself is bad at all, Um, uh, so yeah, we're impressed with it and that's what we're using.
1: It's one of the ways. The other way is in (coughs) uh, performance, like a lot of, and optimization, oh geez, we've had so many developers complain about um, optimizing their games in Unity, uh, especially if they're doing console versions.
0: Uh, console versions are tricky, um, uh, for sure. There there was definitely a problem with the, especially the Xbox One version of Unity, but they've made some very big improvements in that over the last year or so. Um, uh, I think any implementing any console game is is pretty t- tricky because you've got these very tight constraints, um, which which are not really there on, on the PC, or at least more flexible on the PC. Um, so I don't know. I mean, obviously most of our backers, most of our players, will uh, are are all pretty much hardcore PC gamers. Right. Um, we will see. <coughs>
1: Yeah, I, I kind of figured that this game was being targeted for a PC release um, primarily, yeah, given the, yeah, for sure. you know, uh, given the depth and complexity, depth and complexity on display here.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, that is something that people have claimed hobbled the um, modern XCom games. The fact that they did develop it um, in tandem with consoles, but uh, you know, that's not. Yeah. Really-
0: um, that is an argument. Uh, yeah, people say that it's, it's dumbed down. I, I don't really buy that because you know the they, uh, the game is certainly more accessible and easy to play for a console player, for sure. Um, but there's still a lot of interesting strategies, especially you know with the, their expansion they they did the enemy within, and uh, you know XCOM 2 also has on a tactical level XCOM 2 is way more sophisticated than the original XCOM ever was
1: right yeah it's a whole thing that's you know it's pretty silly if i'm being honest for the most part but you know there are merits to the discussion because you know consoles have bottlenecks and all that stuff and you know they're they're not as um flexible as pcs and so on and so forth but anyway um we have another question from the chat um Vager asks if npc factions have their own research trees does that mean they get in new technologies just like the player does by conducting actual research and unlocking new stuff based on available resources uh scientists etc or do they yeah. cheat quote unquote and are more level scaled quote unquote according to how much time has passed in game or how advanced uh, the phoenix project is uh
0: no they don't cheat there's no sort of level scaling mechanic there the the um the factions have to conform to the same rules so they they need to acquire resources they need to build facilities they need to build branches and workshops they need to do the do the research over time they need to have the scientists and engineers and they need to do all that yes
1: um, No, i have kind of a side question to that mm-hmm. will the player be able to like interfere or assist with factions they don't like or do like uh
0: yes absolutely so Um, If you ally with a faction, um, you have both benefits and obligations. So the benefits are that you will get to share their research. Um, What research they do, you will get. The obligations are that you have to assist them defending their havens, and um, you have to share some of the things that you discover as well. Now the interesting thing in the game is that, the, that each each of these factions has their own potential solution to the alien problem, um, but they you know they have to get there. So you can help them directly get to their solution, and that gives you a win for the game. Um, or if uh, on acquiring their solution to the alien problem, you can then implement it yourself. Um, you can literally steal their secrets and information and. Then implement their solution. <clears throat> so all these things are possible.
1: Um, so how long would like a regular session of uh, Phoenix Point last in terms of gameplay?
0: Uh, e- are you talking about a whole campaign or what?
1: Um, say a battle and game. Oh, battle! So the battles are very
0: similar, I guess, in, in scope to XCOM 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them will be bigger, though. So, for example, if your base comes under attack, you will be able to deploy all your forces that you've got now, so that could definitely result in a big battle. Um, the other battles are also potentially bigger once you develop larger craft, carry more people. This is somehow it's a little bit similar to the way it works in the original XCOM. Um, the otherwise, you know, you will probably face many smaller battles, which are literally skirmishes where you're scavenging for resources or doing standard Haven defence. It's, you know, it's. Um, there are also other types of battles, which are, um, you know, assassination, sabotage, stealing. Um, taking over haven, which is like a coup or counter coup attempts. Um, so there's there's uh, some interesting variety there.
1: Hmm. And um, uh, can you say anything on multiplayer at this point?
0: Uh, no, there is. We are not supporting multiplayer in the initial release of uh, Phoenix Point. Um, essentially, because uh, None of, very few of our backers really wanted it. It wasn't that important to them. Uh, so we're not going to implement it, at least not for the initial
1: release. Okay. like um, Sounds like that's some, uh, something that might come down the line afterwards.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, potentially, yes.
1: Okay. Um, let's see, uh, another question. Um, will the game be on Steam? Um, other digital storefronts or a straight release.
0: It will be on Steam and GOG. For sure.
1: Right, and um, uh, is this game being developed only for Windows, or is there going to be a Mac and Linux version?
0: Uh, we are going to do a Mac and Linux version. Um, it's Unity supports it quite well. Uh, We aim to have the Mac and Linux version completely ready for the PC release. Um, So, the answer is yes.
1: That's always good to hear. Um, It's like that answer uh, gets quite varied, especially the Linux version.
0: Yeah, Uh, there are issues. I mean, for for our previous project, Chaos Reborn, we did support Mac and Linux. Um, Linux does tend to cause problems. Uh, for sure. Um, and it's actually impossible to solve everybody's problem unless they're using a relatively well-supported version of Linux and uh, well-supported by Unity, that is. So, yeah, I mean, it, it can be problematic, but um, we managed to do reasonably well with case Reborn.
1: That's good to hear. Um, so uh, are there any details on uh, potential release or price point at this point?
0: Uh, so, our uh, target release date is the end of next year, and the price point uh, we haven't decided on the final price point. It's almost certainly likely to be higher than what the pre-order price is at the moment. Pre-order price for our base version is $30, so it probably will be higher than that when when we get to release. Um, but for, for now, actually, on our store pre-order store, it's thirty dollars. Ah, uh,
1: uh, doing a uh, is the game in early access?
0: Not yet. So we will be releasing a an initial sort of version to our backers who've bought the uh, sort of second tier of our, you know, the, the digital luxury edition, which gives you early access, very very early access. Uh, and those backers will be able to get access to it. Um, by the end of March next year and uh, we will continue be making releases to backers up to the um, the main release which will be on Steam
1: good to hear alright I'll see if my colleagues have any final questions for you um, I think all of my questions were answered I probably have quite a few but we don't have a ton of time so. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, But we might have you on again when the game uh, reaches a more complete state of release.
0: It will be my pleasure.
1: Ah, Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. So the game is Phoenix Point. Um, You can pre-order at uh, phoenixpoint.info. It's $30 right now. It'll be $50 uh, come release. And yeah, I'm looking forward to playing this myself. I sure, do well, thank you very it, much. Yeah. Like, hopefully we can review it for the show. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that'll about do it for this installment of Fragments of Silicon. Um, <clears throat> as far as tomorrow's episode goes, uh, <clears throat> oh, sorry, Flemmy. Oh, there we go. Um, as far as tomorrow's episode goes, uh, it's going to be a double topic We uh, or a long... Uh, no, it's going to be a double topic. Um, if I'm feeling up to it, I'm like, um, yeah, we, we didn't fan, uh, we didn't secure a guest in time for this. and we're also having an issue with next week's Wednesday guest. um can't go into it right now, but they might have to delay their appearance next week. Don't know, just kind of in limbo there, so it just might be petty fans streaming uh, tomorrow. But on that note,, um, We hope you enjoyed this presentation of ours, and uh, you'll be with us tomorrow, whatever we have presented. And until then, I wish you good games.